Please pray with me. Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And as Jesus challenged us this morning in the word, may we have ears to see, ears to hear, and eyes to see. Amen. 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 All right. <laughs> Great start. Well, I want to begin this morning with a bit of a parable. Uh, at one point in his youth, N.T. Wright, who's one of my favorite Bible scholars, uh, was an amateur actor in a play. And he had a really disorienting experience, and I want to share it with you. He writes, We had rehearsed the show for weeks and reckoned that we had it pretty well sorted out. We were a bunch of enthusiastic amateurs, but we were quite pleased with our singing, acting, and dancing. The show was going to be good, funny, and exciting. People would love it. And they did. But in the last performance, the star of the show had a new idea. He didn't tell anyone. He simply, at a crucial moment, did the opposite of what we'd rehearsed. Can you imagine someone doing that on purpose? <coughs> Wright continues, What the star actor realized was that we were in danger of getting stale, and he knew that if he shocked us on stage, our reactions would be all the better. He was right. We all jumped up like startled rabbits, just as if we'd been practicing the move for ages. The audience loved it. We all responded, and the performance was electric. It wasn't what we'd expected, but it was better than we dared to hope. Now, I don't know how this story sits with you, but I imagine if I were in that show, I would have been half excited and half furious <laughs> with that cheeky lead actor for intentionally departing from the script. And there's something similar going on here in our gospel reading today from Matthew 11. John the Baptist, one of Jesus' chief advocates and supporters, is languishing in prison. And meanwhile, he seems to feel that Jesus isn't sticking with the script. And Jesus, like the lead actor in the play, seems to be freestyling in a way that's both exciting but also frustrating. To people like John and others, the only difference is that Jesus would say he's actually sticking to the script, the real script, which was foretold in the scriptures, rather than submitting to man's expectations. Would you please grab a pew Bible and turn with me to Matthew 11, beginning on verse 2. It's on page 816 of your pew Bible. Now, today is the third Sunday of Advent where we remember John the Baptist. And as you're turning there, I just want to remind you about a few things we learn about John the Baptist in the Gospels. So John the Baptist is the cousin of Jesus, and uh, he actually had a quasi-miraculous birth as well. Um, his birth was announced to his father by the angel Gabriel, and John the Baptist... Um, was the first one to say about Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right? And John the Baptist, um, his, his sort of main job, according to the Gospels, was to prepare the way for Jesus, to make straight paths 
for the Messiah to walk on. So he called the people, he preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he called the people to turn away from their sins and to turn to God. To make a path for the Messiah to come to his people. And uh, I think one of my favorite uh, passages about John the Baptist in Scripture happens in John chapter 3. And it's in that passage Jesus refers, I mean, uh, excuse me, John refers to himself as the friend of the bridegroom. So sort of as like the best man. And he says, when the bridegroom comes on the scene, then, then the best man moves aside, right? So his disciples are starting to get jealous of Jesus. And, and John says, no, 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 no. He must increase and I must decrease. Right? And something interesting that I learned as I was researching for this sermon today is that... Um, The actual feast day of John the Baptist, which is June 24th, um, happens right around the time of the summer solstice. And uh, and so it's the day when um, when you have the longest day of the year, the longest time of daylight of the year. So every day after the feast day of John the Baptist, the light decreases little by little. Now, interestingly, Jesus's feast day happens about six months later. What's what's the feast day of the birth of Jesus? Christmas, December 25th, right. And that happens right around the time of the winter solstice. So uh, on the birth of Jesus, it's the shortest day of the year. And every day after that, there's increasingly more and more light, less and less darkness. So these early, you know, our, our, our early brothers and sisters in the faith sort of baked that truth into the early church calendar. Isn't that beautiful? He must increase. I must decrease. All right, so let's dive into this passage now, beginning at verse 2. It says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples. So we notice right away that John is actually quite a famous person in his own right. He's probably Jesus' most important supporter. Um, He's famous. He has his own disciples. But at this point in the story, he's languishing in prison. He's been arrested by King Herod. And he says to Jesus by his disciples, are you the one to come or shall we look for another? Now, I wonder if the fact that John the Baptist seems to be now having some kind of doubts about who Jesus is has anything to do with the fact that He's in prison and he's suffering. Right? Maybe his expectations of what's supposed to happen don't seem to be lining up with the events. N.T. Wright says this. He says, no doubt John looked forward eagerly to the day not long from now when Jesus would confront Herod himself, topple him from his throne, become king in his place, and get his cousin out of prison and give him a place of honor. I think that's probably true. That's probably what John the Baptist is waiting to see. And so I think it's actually kind of fair that this is what John the Baptist thinks Jesus is trying to do. And I want to sort of draw for you um, what the Jewish people in the first century uh, seemed to believe about the coming of the Messiah. Those who did believe in the Messiah, uh, which was most, seemed to believe that... um, That Israel and all the world was living in what we call the present age. 
sometimes called in Scripture the present evil age, but that at some point the Messiah would come and sort of catapult history into a new age, the age to come, or the Messianic age. And so when the Messiah came, Israel, who had been oppressed by Rome, would have their rightful place at the center of the story. Their Messiah would reign not only over Israel, but over all the nations. And it would start this sort of like theopolitical time of prosperity. And that anyone who was not in line with the Messiah or anybody who had been persecuting the Jews, they would be vindicated on that day and justice would fall upon the persecutors, right? And so this is what John the Baptist seemed to have in mind. And so he says from prison, so are you the one who is to come? Because I'm still in prison. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we expect another, right? Now let's read on and see how Jesus answers him. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. It's easy to say, yeah, sure, I'm that guy. But Jesus knows that actions speak louder than words. And he was doing actions that could only be done by the miraculous power of God. All right, so he tells them, go and tell, you, tell them what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Now, as we were meditating on this passage earlier this week, Pastor John and I, uh, he just remarked after he read that verse, he's like, and the gospel is good news to everyone, but it's especially good news to the least. You notice that? All the things that Jesus lifts, the blind, the lame, Lepers, the poor, there's a sense in which when the Messiah comes, the least are lifted up. The least especially hear it as good news. Right? And Jesus is saying, look at, look at the manifest deeds of my ministry, which are actually in line with several prophecies in the prophet Isaiah. And so Jesus is actually using different scriptures, right? To, uh, to think about what his messianic identity was. He does use some of the same scriptures that were used by the Jews at the time, but he's also thinking about it a bit differently. So let me, let me sort of draw this out, all right? So what happens in Jesus's first coming, his first advent, is that instead of coming in kingly glory for a political kingdom, Jesus comes in humility and dies on a cross for the sins of the world. He preaches a gospel of mercy to the poor. He preaches recovery of sight to the blind. He preaches that we can have our sins forgiven, that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit, that God himself would come to live in us. And that Jesus, according to Jesus... There's this sort of in-between age. Yes, Jesus announces the kingdom of God has drawn near, but it's not yet consummated. That's what's going to happen at his second advent, at his second coming. And so in the meantime, we're living in this in-between age where we have an opportunity to receive the forgiveness of God, to receive the amnesty 
of God, to be filled with his spirit, and also to be a part of the advancement of his purposes. So during this time, we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? We're praying and we're hoping to be a part of the advancement of his purposes, not just in us, but out in the world. Amen? Amen. I think it's probably fair to say in this passage that John the Baptist is going through a tough time of doubt. And that this doubt has been brought on by a mixture of both painful experiences and false expectations of Jesus. And in the wake of this, Jesus reaffirms his own messianic identity, reaffirms that God is at work doing the things that only God can do, and he challenges John by saying, Blessed is the one who's not offended in me, the real me. Blessed is the one when they find out what I'm really like is not offended by me. It's as if Jesus is saying to his cousin, Cousin, don't miss the given good because of the expected good. I have a friend who recently went through a tough time. He started dating a girl and he thought that God had finally provided for him the woman who would be his wife. But it didn't work out. And the relationship quickly ended. And for a while, my friend was upset at God. But eventually, he came to terms with the fact that he didn't start following Jesus because he thought he would get a wife out of the deal. Mm -hmm. He started following Jesus because he saw in Christ the only way that he could be reconciled with God. Mm -hmm. And maybe when we first came to know Jesus, we had a mixture of motives. I don't doubt that that was somewhat true for all of us. Maybe we thought following Jesus would lead to health and wealth and prosperity. Maybe we saw in Jesus a free ticket to heaven and out of hell, and that Jesus wouldn't make any kinds of demands on our lives, right? Maybe we thought of Jesus as like the perfect embodiment of our political philosophy, only to find out that the real Jesus wouldn't fit in the boxes the way we wanted him to. Maybe we just thought that as long as we follow Jesus, God will always just give us good feelings. Right? Or at least, you know, more good feelings than bad feelings. Now, all of these expectations have a kernel of truth. But when they're blown out of proportion, they become a stumbling block mm -hmm. to us following the real Jesus. Amen? Amen. And inevitably, if we trust Jesus as his disciples, there comes a time when following Jesus is no longer about our own agenda. Right? It's no longer about our own expectations that we brought into the relationship. Because there comes a time when, when we realize that the only valid reason to follow Jesus is because we believe he is who he said he is. Amen. It's like St. Peter said. Jesus said, what about you guys? Are you going to abandon me as well? And Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And as we pick up the scattered pieces of our own original expectations of Jesus, he says to us what he says to John the Baptist, blessed 
is the one who is not offended by me, the real me. I think as American Christians, we tend to think that if we're going through a time of suffering or persecution or even just a lot of bad feelings, we must be doing something wrong. But that is emphatically not the message of the New Testament. On the contrary, Jesus said that his followers should expect suffering in this life, expect resistance in this life, expect to be shaken. But even in the midst of our suffering, in the not yetness, because the kingdom is now, but it's, but it's not yet, in the not yetness of our present time, we can help one another. Mm-hmm. By walking with one another in our times of suffering, bearing one another's burdens, as the word of God says, seeking the consolation that the Holy Spirit, the comforter, can bring in the midst of our suffering. I actually want to point you to an event that's coming up on December 22nd called Blue Christmas. And uh, that, that's kind of arisen um, grassroots from this congregation, from some people who've really been through some difficult suffering in recent years. And just say, if, if that's you and you need somebody to walk with you to help bear your burden, I encourage you to come to that service because that is important. But as we bear one another's burdens, we don't, we don't sort of suffer or mourn like those who have no hope. We have the real Jesus. And blessed are we if we're not offended by him in the midst of our suffering. Okay, let's continue to read on. In verse 7 it says, As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. I just want to pause and just say, I find something interesting in this passage, which is that, you know, in the midst of John's sufferings, he's he's beginning to sort of have some doubts about who Jesus is. But notice that Jesus' understanding of who John is has not changed. Right now, I wonder how that might speak to us this morning, right? Because maybe, maybe Jesus has become a little bit elusive to us or we started to doubt him or something like that. And I wonder if we need to be reminded that he knows who you are, right? He knows the real you. And maybe he showed you who you are when you first came to know, know him. And you're still the evangelist he's called you to be. Or the encourager. right? Or the healer. And you need to be reminded who you are in the Lord. You've begun to forget who he is, but he remembers who you are. right? So as, as we want to be reminded who we are, we need to be reminded who Jesus is. The creator. He knows who we are. Amen? All right. So he began to speak to the crowd concerning John. He said, what did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? In other words, did you, did you go to see somebody who just sort of flip-flops, who changes his opinion on the truth in order to sort of please man, right? The way that almost all our politicians do nowadays. Is that what you went to see? In fact, um, the emblem on Herod's coins was a Galilean reed that was blowing in the wind. So there's a contrast going on here. What then did you go to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. That's not what you went out to see when you went out to see John. John was not wearing soft clothing. He looked like this wild-eyed prophet. In fact, 
as we read descriptions about him in the Gospels, we learn what he looked like, what he was dressed in, actually looked a lot like what Elijah was dressed in. Right? It was reminiscent of the prophet Elijah. So Jesus actually says later, if you will accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. So the Jews had this expectation that Elijah would come before the Messiah returned. And he said, yeah, I mean, that, that has happened, right? It's almost like he's, he's kind of saying, you know, yes, th that was, a, that was a somewhat of a fair expectation. God's done that for you. He who has ears, let them hear, right? Um, so he wants them to lean into that. And he says, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. And here Jesus gets to the heart of who John really is. He says, this is the one of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So John is the preparer. He's the one who prepares the way. That's a quotation from Malachi 4. That, he, that there would come one who prepares the way for the Lord. And we also, Malachi 3, excuse me, we learn in, in, in chapter 4 of Malachi about this promise about Elijah's coming as well. So there's a lot in, in this text. In fact, um, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they don't call John the Baptist John the Baptist. They call him St. John the Forerunner. Because the most important thing they say is not just that he baptized people, but that he was preparing the way for Jesus through these baptisms, right? And um, Jesus goes on to say, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. Now I want to show you um, uh, just kind of visually... Um, what what Jesus is saying, all right? So, Claire, you're going to be John the Baptist. You stand up, all right? And then I want Gail to stand up and Scott to stand up and Skip to stand up. Everybody in a straight line behind you, just just those in a straight line. And uh, and Claire um, and Gail, keep going. All right, all right, all right. So the prophets, all right. Bev is a prophet, and and she ultimately is prophesying about Jesus, whether she knows it or not. All right. So I want you to point to the cross. And Uju is also a prophet. Whether she knows it or not, she is prophesying about the Lord Jesus Christ. So point to the cross. 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 And John the Baptist is the last, and you keep pointing, is the last and greatest of all the preparers. Of all that are being, of all those who are foretelling about Jesus, he's the last and greatest. He's the best man of the bridegroom because he gets to be the one who's there when they, when when, he, when the bridegroom actually arrives on the scene. Amen. Amen. All right, give them a hand. All right. Now, I think there's something interesting that goes on in this passage because Jesus gives us. You know, he says, yes, you know, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. But then he adds this shocking twist. He says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. How can this be? How can it be that the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven, including you and you and you and me, all of us who have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior by faith, who have been baptized into his name, 
are greater than the greatest man of the age that came before us. How can that be? Because John was living in the age of expectation, and we are living in the age of fulfillment. John was preparing the way for Jesus, and we have the spirit of Jesus living in us right now. The future age that the prophets foresaw where the Holy Spirit would live in his people and God would remember our sins no more, as we see in Jeremiah 31 about the new covenant. That's the age we're living in, guys. I heard this analogy where it's like, um, you know, imagine um, you're in the there's this there's this family business and they're in the business of, of making horse drawn carriages and they make the greatest horse drawn carriages in the world. And they make them for royalty. Everybody comes to them. And it just seems like their business is secure. It's been secure for generations. And they're just going to keep pumping out these horse-drawn carriages. And then, uh, you know, around 1900 or a little bit before then, all of a sudden the automobile comes out. And it's as if, like, you know, one of the people from this family went on this sort of business conference and then comes back and says, guys, I got some news for us. From now on, the junior mechanic that's working on the assembly line in this automobile thing is going to have more job security than us. Right? This is sort of what's going on is that, you know, uh, that, that the kingdom that, that was ushered in is so much greater than what came before. It's going to be so much more useful. It's going to be so much more exciting. Uh, I, I wouldn't mind a, a horse-drawn carriage ride so that the analogy sort of uh, uh, falls apart. But it's true. They couldn't have anticipated that that, that that business that had been going for generations would fall by the wayside. Likewise, and much more appropriately, Jesus, he's not minimizing the greatness of John the Baptist, who he obviously respects. He's magnifying the greatness of the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. And in some sense, this passage is actually not really about John the Baptist at all. It's actually about Jesus. Because by magnifying the one who prepares the way, he's magnifying the one whom he prepares the way for. Right? So if I, if I um, introduced you to someone and I, and I said, let me introduce to you the best friend of the greatest man that I know. And then you find out later that it's my best friend. <laughs> Well, eventually, you put two and two together and realize what I was up to. So likewise, and much more appropriately, Jesus doesn't go right out and say, yeah, I'm the Messiah, I'm the King. But he implies it in so many ways through the things that he says about John the Baptist. And then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So this morning, we talked about the identity of John the Baptist, of St. John the Forerunner. We've talked about the importance of setting aside our own expectations of Jesus and sinking them with his own self-understanding. He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And we've talked about the surpassing greatness of the age that the Messiah will usher in. And I want to close this morning by saying a bit more about the greatness and worth of the kingdom. And the sense of urgency that we should have to enter into it. And to call others to enter into it. Let me point you to one last cryptic verse from this passage. Look with me at verse 12. 
It says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, there's different sort of interpretations of this passage, but the most common is that Jesus is actually really affirming John's ministry here. He's saying, look, John was so wildly successful in preparing the way that when I arrived on the scene, people are like shoving and pushing and doing everything they can to get in, right? And we do actually see that in Jesus's ministry. I mean, the bleeding woman who's not even supposed to touch people, she's like pushing through the crowds. I just want to touch the hem of Jesus's garment, right? The rich man, Zacchaeus, he's climbing a tree to see Jesus, right? How undignified is that? Jesus is telling parables when it's like, you should knock on your friend's door in the middle of the night. You should sell everything you have and buy the treasure that's that's in the field. That's the kingdom of God, right? One Bible scholar put it this way when talking about this verse. He says, the kingdom is not ill-treated, but it is, as it were, taken by storm. In Latin, we might summarize the message of this verse as carpe diem, seize the day, spiritually speaking. And Jesus is saying that John the Baptist's greatest legacy is how God used him to wake people up to the spiritual significance of the moment. Amen? Mm. Amen? How he called people to seize the day. Seize the kingdom. It's available. The kingdom of heaven is drawn near. Seize it. It's right there. Don't miss your moment. And you know who didn't miss the moment the least? But you know who went away sad? Those who had the most. We live in a country and at a time where we have so much. And I wonder, Incarnation, if today we have an appropriate sense of urgency to enter the kingdom and to call others to enter the kingdom. Are we heeding the call of this wild-eyed prophet in our own day to repent and believe the good news ourselves, to call others to repent and believe the good news? Because this is a glorious kingdom that we're being invited into. The least in this kingdom is going to be greater than John the Baptist. I recently read an article in the Times by a British political writer, Matthew Paris, who is himself an atheist. He's an atheist. But in the article, he shows a genuine understanding about the urgency that the Christian message would create if we really believe it's true. I'm going to quote from Paris at length as I draw to a close this morning. He says, If God exists, then our godless existence falls apart. And if God does not exist, then surely the church falls apart. We would be dealing with a superstition. A whole range of ancillary debates would just drop away as pointless. I simply cannot understand why all those millions of my British countrymen who mumble that they're probably believers can regard their uncertainty as anything less than a personal emergency. Why are they not driven to find out more? Paris continues, the New Testament offers a picture of God who does not sound at all vague to me. He has sent his son to the earth. This is is an atheist. He has distinct plans for us and for his son and for mankind. He knows each of us personally and can communicate with us directly. We're capable of forming a direct relationship individually with him and are commanded to try. We're told that this can only be done through his son. We're offered the prospect of eternal life and afterlife of happy, blissful, or glorious circumstances if we live this life in a certain manner. 
And Paris concludes, friends, if I believe that, or even a tenth of that, how can I care which version of the prayer book is used? I would drop my job, sell my house, throw away my possessions, leave my acquaintances, and set out into the world with a burning desire to know more. And when I found out more, to act upon it and to tell others. How is it possible, he says, to be indifferent to the possibility, if one believes it's a possibility, that a being of this order makes demands of this order upon you or me, and that in 30, 20, 10 years, perhaps tomorrow, we shall be taken from this life and ushered into a new one whose nature will depend upon our obedience now to his will. That's a non-believer who understands the urgency of the kingdom. And I wonder if, as we're stepping into this Christmas season, it's just kind of on repeat, have we become domesticated in our understanding of the kingdom and of the greatness of the kingdom and of the opportunity that we have in this age before Jesus returns to judge the quick and the dead, in this age to tell others to accept the amnesty that God is holding out to the whole world through the crucifixion of His Son, our Savior, who is indeed the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Amen. Amen.